it's the ripple effect that when I, at the end of the day, if I feel replenished through my work, I've got more energy to share with my family, my neighbors, my community. That's what I mean about making the world better. It replenishes people to make a difference. You're listening to episode 34 of the Happy Space podcast. And today we're exploring how to redesign work to better serve people and our planet with Lisa Whited. Welcome to the Happy Space Podcast, where productivity meets inclusivity, and everyone gets things done. Hello, I'm Claire Kumar, highly sensitive executive coach, speaker, and your host. Studies show that diversity leads to better business outcomes. So doesn't it make sense to invite everyone's richest contribution? Yet too many people are invited to burn out or opt out, and we are squandering talent. On this show, we'll explore a two-part solution. Part one, cultivating sustainable performance, the individual design of work and life to preserve our energy so we can keep contributing. And two, designing inclusive performance, the design of spaces, cultures, products, and services which invite the richest participation. I hope you enjoy these conversations and find inspiration and encouragement for everyone deserves a happy space. I long for the time when don't sweat the small stuff. Do you remember that book? I long for the time when that title was relevant. Right now we are in times of chronic stress, high risk of burnout and existential crisis. And yet there is hope. My guest today, workplace expert and author of Work Better, Save the Planet, Lisa Whited, brings us a message grounded in research to design better businesses along with richer, more inclusive work experiences, embedding respect for humanity and the planet. It's an invitation to question everything, furthering the exploration many of us were forced into during the pandemic and to find creative paths forward. We need to greet this opportunity with an openness and courage to try new things. We can't afford not to. Lisa is the granddaughter of a potato farmer and the daughter of an engineer. So farming informs her work ethic and engineering her deep love of solving problems. She believes obviously in the art of possibility and has a passion for improving the world of work. She brings us practical examples of paths forward. And I particularly love the story of Asho Ebi. And to find out what that is, please listen towards the end where where she talks about this incredibly powerful tradition that they adopted in their family for a very personal event. It's uh, powerful and meaningful, as was my conversation with Lisa. I do hope you enjoy it. Lisa, welcome to the Happy Space Podcast. I'm so thrilled you're here. I am delighted to be here, Claire. Thank you so much. Ever since I was just saying this before we hit record here, I was just saying that as soon as I stumbled upon you on LinkedIn and some conversations with like-minded people, and I learned the title of your book, I was so intrigued and excited to meet you and coming to know you. I am more excited than ever to get behind your work and bring your important message to our listeners and beyond. I want to start with a question, and this is a statistic you actually 
almost closed the book with. You said that 8% of people, only 8% of people can be expected to do the right thing. We're in a moment now where the world has literally been on fire. I'm in Canada and it's we've just come through a summer of fire, the tragedy in Maui. Uh, there are weather incidents every day, every week in the news. The world is screaming at us, but only 8% of people are going to do the right thing knowingly. Mm. Where are we in this conversation right now around embedding the very, very critical need to take care of our planet in the way we do business and the way we live? That is such a great that is such a great question. And I'll tell you that statistic, as as small as it sounds, actually is one that gave me hope. And let me give you context on why that number gave me hope. I came across it when I was looking at understanding what is it going to take to to shift things you know to really get to the tipping point if you will you know of and i you know we might think well we need a simple majority of 51% to to of people to really hop on board yeah. and 8% are going to do the right thing just innately well how are we going to get from 8 to 51 well the hope came when i learned that social change requires 25% 25 and if we've got eight to begin with, then we're looking for the 17. And so 17 is the magic number here. Where's our 17%? And that's the group that we want to connect with to get to 25%. And then, you know, the rest will come along. So so there's my hope in that small number. <laughs> I love it. You just, yeah, you just lit me up as well, because as I, as I um, think mentioned earlier, I spoke to Tom Peters and, you know, 45 years of trying to have the same conversation and yeah. I've only been at it for 30 years, you know, yeah. uh, how do you keep up this hope? But you're right. You know, 8% is well on the way to 20. We're a third of the way there. We're, we're almost there. And, and so I, and that's what I say, let's find our 17 percenters because I'm not going to try to convince somebody who doesn't want to be convinced. I'm not looking for that person. I'm looking for the person that's open, a little bit open-minded, curious, really does want to do something, but not sure where to begin. Those are the ones we begin with. And we start, you know, sadly, it is one conversation at a time, but you can start to build momentum there. Yeah. Well, this is why I have a podcast because we're having a conversation, but we're yeah. leveraging this conversation to be in many, many people's ears and invite them to spread these messages and feel empowered to, to be that change that we're aspiring yeah. to. So yeah, yeah. yeah I was uh, so thrilled to read the book and for anyone who's listening, I also want to share that I was in love with how Lisa created the book. It's a easy to digest, a hundred, uh, just over a hundred pages, four color printing. Hello. You spoke to all my senses, the texture of the cover, the images inside, kudos to your graphic designer. And and you've just made it a compelling, easy read, synthesizing key thoughts. I uh, I wanted to um, highlight something because after you wrote about Patagonia's Yvon Chouinard, I was kind of curious. So for listeners, first of all, Patagonia has been a forward-thinking organization since 1973 when it was founded. And even today, I just looked up Patagonia's uh, website and it says now today, Earth is now our only shareholder. Mm -hmm. Our impact in the world comes from operating as a for-profit business we will continue to serve as a beacon for the entire business community by proving that purpose 
and profits are inextricably linked. This was in his answer to question is why isn't it a nonprofit? Because mm. as you make in the book, there is a connection between purpose and profit. Yeah. 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 But my, yeah. my, what I also noticed in my little sleuthing there is you're both from Maine and you both have daughters named Claire. So I'm curious if there's, you know, there some, <laughs> Ooh, there's some other things at work here. Yeah. Today's episode of the Happy Space podcast is sponsored by ClaireKumar.com. With sensitivity, curiosity, and courage, I serve three groups asking the tough questions that lead to meaningful answers. Number one, I coach ambitious leaders to design for well-being and achieve next level work-life integration. Number two, I mic drop thought bombs, that's bombs as in B-A-L-M-S, in keynotes and workshops, helping organizations achieve the business imperative that is inclusivity. And three, I collaborate with brands concerned with respect for well-being on product design, marketing, and PR. If any of this piqued your interest, come find me at clairekumar.com. I'd love to speak with you. Designing inclusive performance together will lead to the richest results. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so he's an example we can point to. And I think there's a conscious capitalism summit now of leaders who are like-minded B Corps and California Benefit Corporations, these kind of organizations who are really putting a stake in the ground. What else are, who else are you noticing that's doing some of this great work that other leaders can point to? Well, and the conscious capitalism movement actually was founded by uh, Raj Sosadia, probably saying his name wrong, and um, John Kelly, I think, the founder of Whole Foods. And so that's been in place for a few years. And so that's the good news. There are business leaders that are showing that you can do good for the earth and make a profit, right? And we talk about the three Ps, you know, profit, planet. Was it purpose? I don't know. Another P there. People, purpose. There's people, a bunch yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably people. Yeah, yeah there's a yeah. bunch of P's. Um, yes. And then we have B Corps, as you mentioned. You know, so there's a lot of initiatives. And and the thing, the, the statement I was making with my book is there are all these great things that are out there, but you can begin wherever you are just by simply having conversations with your own employees and listening and making a difference. You know, I always say your employees have the answers. You hire good people. Trust that they're the ones you should be listening to and invite them into conversations about what can we do differently around here? What could we do to make a real difference on our carbon footprint or on Mm -hmm. how we are using materials? And then in that way of conversation, you also have an opportunity to include the marginalized, the ones you don't normally hear from. And this gets some into your work as well. The introverts, the people on the spectrum, the people with ADHD, those with invisible disabilities, people of color. Um, We've got gender, you know, LGBTQ plus, even today, 50% stay closeted at work. So what I found is an opportune moment to think about the world of work in the pandemic, so many things that weren't working well beforehand, and what could we do to really rethink to improve work, but also make that difference for climate change. So there are many actually European models as well um, as a service. And so, you know, the circular economy, right? Patagonia is great at this. They have their 
their reuse. They take their products back and um, they don't want any of it to end up in the landfill. I didn't know that. You know, when I traveled around the world when I was 26 and I yeah. remember my Patagonia fleece and I had Patagonia shorts and yeah. they, they lasted that trip and well, well, well beyond that. But I had no idea about this taking things back. Yeah. Yeah. Eileen Fisher is another one. And then um, in Denmark, I think it is, there's bundle. Think about all the appliances that end up in the landfill, washing machines, you know, dishwashers, well, they're only built refrigerators. for eight years now. Exactly. Short term. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. with bundle, this company designs and manufactures high quality washing machine and dryer equipment. You pay for the use. So I get it into my house. I use it. I pay for the use. It's not like renting it. It's for each use. And then when I don't need it anymore, they take it back and they are responsible for they and it, so they're incentivized to make great quality products, right? Because wow. then they can send it out to somebody else or they pull it apart and make another equipment. So they're incentivized to not put anything in the landfill. That's circular economy. That is yeah. circular thinking. And everything in our life from fast fashion to fast food to use it and then throw it away is is not made that way. You know, this is an old idea. This is my grandparents darning their socks. You know, yeah. I I remember my father would put a light bulb in the in the heel of his sock and he would fix the Perfect. hole. It's an old idea, but everything in our world in the last few decades has been not thinking about that. It's been about throw away instead of reuse. Well, it's making me think of a couple of things here. Number one is I see the young people absolutely in love with thrifting. I have consigned some of my favorite clothes for television, things like the things you wouldn't expect. Yeah, me too. So there's yeah. there's that which is which is also yeah. great. But I'm also thinking of the responsibility for manufacturers to really think through this. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind right away, which is not necessarily related to this, but does have an impact, car manufacturers not designing the anti-theft um mm technology into their cars. So they're, they're getting ripped off from driveways, can be putting put on containers. Somebody here needs to go buy a new car. Mm. It's, it's, mm. it's like perpetuating demand and they could fix that by just putting yeah. a device in the tracks, the car, like yeah. there's, you yeah. know, there's, it's not that hard. So yeah. I, yeah. I look at where does the responsibility lie into and where do consumers actually, it's up to the consumer to raise a voice. I mean, I think of Costco packaging, I, yeah. um, I would buy bathing suits. I buy five at a time. And when they're on sale there, because I swim almost every day uh -huh. and they used to come on these big plastic pieces oh, yeah. to yeah. stretch out the suit. Right. So you could see what it looked like huh. and they've moved to cardboard, but really do, like, really, do we need every individual one to be on a piece of cardboard yeah. or plastic? Yeah. I'm, yeah. It shakes my head and the anti-theft there's this, always this um, sort of mix of objectives, risk management, as well as, you know, eco-friendly maybe, and customer service. I remember trying to buy eggs, for example, yeah. and I wanted to buy the free range organic eggs, but they came in plastic, in plastic whereas yeah. the ones that were, like, who knows what they were fed and they were probably cooped up. They were in paper. I'm like, I want yeah. all the things. Why can't we just make it clean and simple? And the yeah. thing is, what we're talking about is there are, are individual actions that we all can take 
And that that's good. We should all, that's the eight percenters that are just, we're going to do everything we can, but then there is much bigger impact that needs to happen. And it does go back. It's, it's both consumers rethinking their consumerism habit Mm -hmm. and it's manufacturers and others rethinking how they are putting products and services into the world. So it it takes both. And it does also come to governance and legal. And I am by no means an expert in any of that, but I do know when there are certain policies in place and, and that has happened, I believe in Europe, then you almost don't have a choice anymore. You've got to, you'll have huge fines if you don't do everything in your power to keep things out of the landfill. So I feel like we have to sort of take it from all, all it's kind of It's kind of two pronged, right? It's the, it's the regulations and it's what are people going to come up with on their own and do? And, and hopefully we collectively drive it forward, but we need regulation to keep up with just the missteps we've been making. And also technology advances. We're playing always catch up. Yes. regulation in so many ways, AI right now, also noise and light pollution, which I talk a lot about, you know, things get away from us and we have a lot of catching up to do, which is led by a lot by voices of the 8%, hopefully more in leadership than just at the, at the consumer level. But um, there is opportunity. You, what I loved in the book too, is you nailed a leadership fear of managing expectation with Mm. the workforce. Mm. And, and you, and you describe the workforce as bored, over commuting and uninspired. So it may be a difficult group of people to manage. What do you, you, you actually talk about having one-on-one conversations to build empathy yeah. and yes. then you oh, come yes. back to, to and yes. then you come yes. to share it. It's sort of this ask process. In, yeah. 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 And ask. So, um, and, and it's really interesting in, in my book, you know, you can tell I've been informed by a lot of other reading that I've done. I've just so many, just fascinated. And Peter Block, who wrote Community, the Structure of Belonging, and he also wrote Flawless Consulting. Um, his his work really impacted my approach with inviting people into a conversation. And, and you know, it is, I am talking about the workplace here, but we can apply many of these concepts to any conversation. But the importance of choice. So first of all, saying to somebody, you know, really would love to have you participate in this conversation, but I understand if you choose not to, um, we'll miss you if you're not there. So by giving people choice that they can opt out, that's a really important part of an invitation and the personal invitation. So how many times do people get an all staff email and they don't even read it? They're like, "Uh, it's not for me. But versus if Claire sends me a personal note, says, hey, Lisa, that's I'm going to pay attention to even better if we have a conversation and you tell me about what's coming up. But then once we pull the people together, and again, you can do this physically together in a room, or you can do it virtually very well, um, very easily mm-hmm. to say, okay, you're all going to go into small breakout rooms for maybe like five, six minutes. There'll just be two of you in each room, or, or if you're in the big physical room, just turn to the person next to you and you're going to talk with each other for a few minutes. And so the question is a very pointed one. Um, And in this example I used, it's what allows you to have an awesome day at work? What allows you to have your absolute best day, super productive, you feel awesome. So you share with me what that is. And then I share with you. And then we come back to the large group and we start to share out and I use technology to make sure all voices are heard. But what yes. we do in that and, moment- And, and anonymous. 
And anonymous, right? By right. by using Menti or another tool like that, you allow mm-hmm. people to share anonymously. So what we're doing, what I'm striving to do there is have people build connection and empathy to understand some wonderful advice I got uh, not too long ago. I was frustrated one morning and her name was Gail. And she said, Lisa, you know, people don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I be an asshole today? <laughs> and I thought, all right, you are right. But sometimes it feels like they are. But the point is that people are often trying to do their best work and they want to be a contributor. So yeah. by just connecting one-on-one mm-hmm. and a lot of times in these conversations, people don't know each other that are put together and that's intentional, especially in a large organization. Mm-hmm. I want people that don't talk to each other every day to to connect and hear each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, coming back to the large group and using um, an online technology, what were the things you came up with? What were the things, the ideas you had to help your partner have a great day at work, wherever they're working? Yeah, That is simple. It's straightforward and it's quick and it, and it gets everybody yeah. engaged. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I've just been working on the work style profile, which is almost the precursor to that, because uh, what, what I'm inviting people to do is really deep dive on what makes them most productive at work yeah. and, and have that self-reflection. So this is a tool, if they would have this and then go into that conversation, that'd be like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. But, so I think there's an opportunity maybe for depth in this articulation of what it is. Cause it's a lot of things. It's a, it's it's a lot, lot of things. Lot. And, and we don't often think about it. We are yeah. on autopilot, uh, you know, another great book, James Clear, Atomic Habits. We, and I believe the workplace is really just, it's a Petri dish of habits. We do things the way we've done them because we've always done them that way. And we never stop to question it. Yeah. So it, I love that you're doing that self-reflection exercise to really pause and think and then have that conversation. Yeah. And then you're right. It's bringing people together And then, so to come back to that fear of managing expectations that leaders might have, how do you, how do you help them through that piece? What I share with them is, is this is a tightly facilitated, well thought out process. I think often when they say fear of managing expectations, they've either done it differently in the past, or they feel like people are going to come together and start giving a litany of complaints and they want this and that. I never ask somebody, what do you want? I don't ask them, what do you want? I ask them, how how, what are the outcomes you hope for, or how are you going to be most productive or what allows you to do your best work? Those types of questions lead to different types of answers. If I said, what do you want? People say, I want a private office with a door. That's just what people want, or that's what they think they want. It's a fear response because what they read in all the headlines, again, workplace is open office, this open that. And and this is where language is really important because often what we're just thinking about for how people work is not an open office. It's not this call center with row after row. That is such an old model. That is such an old model. It's just, it still exists, but <laughs> well, it shouldn't, it shouldn't exist, but it, but it does. And that's people's fear. And I understand that real fear and also any change is uh, fear is a natural response to change. So I think it's a fear. You're going to cost me a lot of money, Lisa, if I ask this question, right? You're going to cost me, you're going to have me bending and doing backflips. And a lot of the modifications that I've looked into are simpler and a lot are rooted in flexibility, which is, which comes to another fear, which is, and, and this is, I think related, I'd love your thought about this. 
I think it's related a little bit to the difficulty in managing the abstract. So as a productivity coach, I talk to people all the time about managing time abstract. Mm -hmm. And now if your people are no longer in front of you, because mm -hmm. you're allowing this flexibility, it is harder and you need different tools and structures to kind of help your brain along as Daniel Levitin would say in the organized mind, right? Yes. What, yes. Are, what are you noticing? Do you think that has a part to play in the reluctance to allow the flexibility that the workforce wants? I, I think it does. Again, it comes from old model of thinking, command and control. I see you. I know you're working. It really goes back to the assembly line. Think about the offices up around the mezzanine looking down yes. on the workers. And and the thing is, and, and I write about it in my book, ROWE, R-O-W-E, which is results only work environment, which has been around since the early 2000s, very successfully implemented in um, Best Buy, yeah. Uh, and and um, Cal Newport, uh, one of my favorite authors, wrote a fantastic article in The New Yorker about this as a success uh, story. Yeah. When we say, what are the goals? What are the outcomes? What are the expectations? What are the deadlines? Give me all those parameters and then let me figure out how I'm going to get it done. And that goes to the work of self-development, autonomy, mastery, and purpose, yeah. which is the work of Daniel, Daniel Pink. Pink and drive, yeah. right? Autonomy, mastery, purpose. So let me be self-directed. Tell me what you want done, but let me figure out how I'm going to do it. Yeah. Give me the deadline and, and let me master new information. That's sort of innate growth and development. There are many great already there. It's not reinventing the wheel. That's the thing. Like it's already out there. Uh, just borrow from that and do a trial. And that's the, the one advice I've had for leaders is still think of this as a time of experimentation. That gives everybody a little bit of breathing room. So, you know, somebody, we're going to try this. It's a constant experiment. This is yeah, one of my right. questions. Is, is how often yeah. do you need to be doing this? And isn't, isn't that curious mindset going to be a good one to stay in? It is good to stay in that. And I think a check-in every six months is good to check in. And it's not the same old employee engagement survey. That mm. doesn't hold water anymore. And, it, and, and I've actually said, stop the surveys. Let's oh yeah. Start the conversations. I don't know if you know Dan Pontefract. Um, he's also on the podcast and uh, he talks about right now, he's writing a lot about totally challenging the whole concept of engagement. Like, let's just stop talking about it because it hasn't changed ever, oh, except for getting ever. slightly it's worse. A, so, yeah. so yeah. Yeah. let's actually totally reframe this whole conversation. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I yeah. want to come back to something else you mentioned and you touched on it now, sort of as we looked at the construct of work and in the book, you talk about, you know, we move, we move from an industrial age and 16 hours a week down to an eight hour day. And, you know, that concept of Richard Owen had of eight hours rest, eight hours work, eight hours leisure, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're, we've evolved to understand. And if I look at my cats, I can tell you there is no... <laughs> eight hours sleep, it's whatever sleep, whenever and wherever I need it. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I just, yeah. just for those um, not watching the YouTube, I just flashed Ellie <laughs> sleeping on my desk and Lisa seen me in this interview go, Oh my God, as Ellie's been turning around on my desk, which he normally doesn't do. Normally he's flat out <laughs> and sleeping. I must put him to sleep. Uh, but Oh my gosh, if we take a cue from animals of which we are, we, yeah, we yeah. are human animals. I'm seeing an evolution to sure we need our eight hours rest or we need to strive for that good solid five sleep cycles overnight, but we also need work and leisure and rest 
to be sprinkled through the entire day in sports, yes. right? There's a radical redefinition of what we want to expect. I mean, call centers right now, I, uh, I know someone in a call center and they have nine seconds between calls. They have an eight hour work day. They have a half an hour lunch and two 15 minute breaks. If there's a traumatic call, you get your nine seconds. Mm. You get your nine seconds, no matter what that did to you, mm. you know, no matter what yeah. the challenge was. We discard humanity. We discard the sense that we're human animals in the way we design work. So that's, I, I'm feeling that's a big part of this invitation is humanity, our relationship to the planet, all of it at, at the same time. Absolutely. And and our relationship to each other and caring. And the thing is, this is part of the culture uh, that is set a tone. And, and so I'm working with an organization now. They, they're awesome organization. Uh, I've been working with them for about a year and a half and they have this set of values. You know, many companies have their vision, their mission, their values, yeah. and their values are about caring. Uh, we're one team. We work together. We care for each other. And yet some of the behaviors that you see just in the day-to-day, -day, that's not showing the caring that they espouse. And so it's really important that disconnect between the words we say we are as a company yeah. and then our actions, that speaks volumes. And that's what sets the culture. It's not your public face on the website that says yeah. this is who we are. It is the day-to-day -day interactions that if Claire's having a really hard time, and I might have a packed day, but the humanity in me comes out to pause my work, to check in with Claire. What can I do to support you? I see you're struggling out of pure compassion and care. Yeah. That is an organization that I'd want to be a part of. And I think many people want to be a part of. It and yet I talk to people in organizations now who still believe there's no place for human need in the workplace. Like life is not meant to cross that, that barrier. It's profound in certain industries, I think, banking, um, accounting, law professions, where there is just this high bar professionalism. And there's, they're dealing with, they're dealing with humanity at work yeah. and all of their, they see it, but yeah. it's like, they're not allowed to go there. They, they haven't been given permission and courage to go there. And I would say, from what I've seen, it's not an industry. It's not a size of company. It's not a geography. It's the mindset of the leader. Yeah. If that leader is one who's courageous, doesn't mind, is, can be vulnerable, um, who shows through his, her, or their actions that they want to nurture and to be caring. And, and too, many, too many old school people say, oh, that's so fluffy. That's so, you're just, yeah. oh, that's just so unrealistic and fluffy. You know, you know what? Our mental health crisis has never been huger right now. The fact that the Surgeon General would put out a warning about isolation that people are dealing with, um, the suicide rate, the opioid usage, and we're talking about all people. We're not talking about a certain demographic. Th these right. are crises, and that's the human crisis. And then you look at the planet. So that's what I mean by work really like this is our opportunity to say, yeah, whoa, we can do things differently that are better. It's better for people. And I want to come back to what you said. It's funny. My my sister and I were at a family cookout over Labor Day weekend. We discovered we're both reading the same book, which shouldn't surprise us because our dad lived to 90. It's um, Outlive by Dr. Peter Adia. 
And it talks about living into your hundreds. Mm -hmm. And I've always more recently prioritized sleep. In my early days, I would be one of those people that burned candle at both ends, as my Mm -hmm. mother would say. But, you know, my eight hours, man, I got to have my eight hours. And and I think it's really important what you just described, sprinkling throughout the day, um, because it's the same with vacation. You know, don't work yourself to death and then go take one or two weeks off. We need everything in moderation, right? We work a little break. Constant replenishment. Yeah. We have this idea that you go to work, you commute there and commute back. And by the end of the day, you've got nothing left. So who's shortchanged Mm -hmm. besides yourself and your ability to exercise or eat well? Your most important relationships. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, exactly. And you write about it in the book that um, the pandemic gave us an opportunity to understand and get back in touch with a better quality of life because yes. we took out the commute. Yes. Minute, right. And that, right. that went back into some went back into work for darn sure it did because some there did. were blurred yeah. boundaries for some people. Yeah. But often it went, I have. Um, friends that are co-CEO, they're CEOs of different companies, but um, you can imagine their life jet setting all over the world, three kids. Mm. And, mm. you know, here's the keys to whatever at the mm. airport exchanges and just, yeah. and yeah. They, they said, to, oh, it was something to realize, you know, the, the value of eating together as a family, you know, yeah. consistently again. Yeah. 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 There's, there's, yeah. there's a lot in that invitation to live a richer life and a more spec- respectful life. And I think, I think the big challenge is from my perspective, and you talk about culture, culture um, influencing our use of space, for example, and, and what, you know, what reasonable personal space looks like, what reasonable mm. office space would feel like America's ballooned and ballooned and ballooned and yes. house size and stuff and all of that. But we have a different relationship too to what we should expect to have and, and what our work and home experience should be. You talk about, and I don't know how to say the word, but you talk about this African fabric. Oh, Eshoevi. Yeah. Eshoevi. Um, yeah. 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 That, I want, maybe we can end on that thought because sure. I thought it was, maybe you can explain what it is and then how it translates as an invitation for leaders Yeah, to be open to this concept of creative Yes. And in inclusion. So my niece was marrying a man from West Africa and the tradition that they shared with us is they, they, we all got some of this beautiful, colorful cloth, vibrant, like the colors behind me and pinks and purples and beautiful fabric, all the same, but we had different uh, varying yards and we were given this cloth and then invited to create whatever we wanted to, to wear for the reception ceremony. And so, you know, I, I'm, I can't sew to save my life, but thank God my sister-in-law can. She made like a tie for my husband, vest for my son, a cool skirt thing for me, you know, and my daughter had a jumpsuit. So it was so beautiful because everybody showed up sharing the same cloth. And so the word Eshawebi, it means family cloth. Mm-hmm. And so it's demonstrating this uniting of families through the fabric. 
but everybody was in with their own interpretation of what they how they wanted to wear the cloth. And what I immediately thought of in the workplace is, wow, wouldn't it be cool if leaders could give their employees the equipment, the space, whatever, and then invite them to create what they need and metaphorical or physical to, to do their best work. So whether it's how I design my day or, you know, how we create the space, whatever it is, but that thinking of invitation, then it makes us all feel part of something. We were part of creating it and we're celebrating together. Yeah. It was beautiful. I read it and I was like, Oh, I've never come across this, um, this concept yeah. before and yeah. that unifying element I thought was beautiful. You feel part of that common, um, yeah, belonging. yeah, and that belonging, is belonging. People want to be part of something, Absolutely. exactly, and not be told. Like if they had sent us all the same thing and said, "You must wear this," we're like, oh, "Like that, okay, bridesmaids. we would, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I really like bridesmaids. Exactly. Perfect. Yeah, that's the difference between bridesmaids dress and and this. And here's six years expression. of yards of shantung silk go crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Go have, go have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's such a such a beautiful concept and part of this beautiful invitation that you've written for leaders to really understand the impact on the planet where we are and the possibility to be part of that 17%. Yeah, to make a difference and have the courage, courageous leadership to do things differently uh, because our your people really, like you said, the Gallup poll has not changed. People's engagement, I love that. We're stopped using that word. Uh, maybe we should use happiness. I don't know what word we should use, Claire, but it's the ripple effect that when I, at the end of the day, if I feel replenished through my work, I've got more energy to share with my family, my neighbors, my community. That's what I mean about making world the world better. It it, it yeah. gives it replenishes people yeah. to make a difference. Yeah, I I believe that people all deserve to live a life of fulfillment, mm-hmm. and the only way we get to a place of being fulfilled is because we're able to give it's in the reciprocity that we get that fulfillment and so exactly to your point if we shut off the ability to give through toxic Mm -hmm. workplaces and and a a planet that is you know going to challenge us in in very serious ways now we are called to attend to that sustenance and that sustainable way of being for ourselves and for our planet for sure yeah yeah Lisa, thanks so much for joining me today. There are so many gems in this conversation and it's really just the beginning for uh, listeners. I hope for you to find and discover Lisa's work, definitely grab a copy of the book and follow her on LinkedIn. Um, Is there anywhere else, Lisa, you'd like to send people? Um, Well, they can go to my website as well. And and there's the book, uh, Work Better, Save the Planet. Um, but my website, lisawhited.com, you get more information there and just send me an email, but LinkedIn is a great place to connect. And I'm, I'm often there writing about whatever is on my mind at the moment. Exactly. It's a wonderful (laughs) place to see your freshest, freshest thoughts. Yeah. So thanks so much for joining me, Lisa, and, uh, keep doing this uh, brilliant work. I will be following you very closely. Thank you. It's delight to be here, Claire. So honored. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all of the Happy Space Podcast episodes over at happyspacepod.com. I love learning what resonates with you, so please leave a comment about this episode over social media, or even better, post a review wherever you tune in. 
And if you have an idea for a topic to explore or an inclusive action to celebrate, I would love to know more about it. It might even appear in an upcoming episode or an issue of the Happy Space Bias Letter. Please help me spread the word about people doing great things. After all, doesn't everyone deserve a happy space?